0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes.
1: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Sam Azzarello, and I'm a global market strategist here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Today, I am really pleased to be joined by the global head of sustainable investing, Jennifer Wu. Jennifer has an amazing and multifaceted background in risk analytics, technology, obviously sustainable investing, but she brings a wealth of experience to our firm. And I'm really excited that we are here to talk about ESG in light of COVID today. Also on the call is our head of strategy and business development, Ben Hess. Ben is really interesting as well because his job is to look around what's the corner, right? What's coming around the corner? What's next? Tethering us to the future in terms of what do we expect with trends and all sorts of happenings in our industry. So we're going to be talking about how COVID-19 has affected the ESG agenda. And as I like to say, nothing stops a wave. And if you think about the wave that's come upon us with respect to ESG investing, stakeholder capitalism, and sustainable investing more broadly, there's really a lot to unpack. So I'm going to start the call today by sharing updates on the markets, and then we're going to turn things over to Jennifer and Ben. So before we dive into ESG, I just want to talk about the labor market report because that's big news. That happened on Friday, and goodness knows I was thinking about it, our team was thinking about it well into the weekend because there's a lot there. So many of you are likely aware, but in May, instead of further job losses, what did we see? We actually saw 2.5 million hires. And in fact, the unemployment rate fell from 14.7% to 133 So, Off the bat, I mean, that seems good and that is good. I will take any silver lining type of news that I can get right now when it comes to the economy. But we just want to put these things in perspective because in the previous two months, we lost 22 million jobs. So As my boss, David Kelly, put it in his note this morning, it's like falling off a cliff and then bouncing off a trampoline, right? So just a little bit of perspective. And the reason why I think we need a bit of perspective, because yes, it was good, or it was a bit of positive news, I should say. But the reason we need a bit of perspective is because if you had allowed for adjustments, which the BLS the Bureau of Labor Statistics had basically called for when they were asking those who were surveying the general public, if they had adjusted things the way that they feel it should have been measured, the unemployment rate would have been 5% higher, okay? It would have been closer to 17%. And when I mean adjustments, I'm just really talking about a little bit of confusion, which I think is fair. So many workers who were furloughed, they're not working, they technically aren't making any pay, they don't have a job they considered themselves employed. So that's neither here nor there, but there's a few other examples of these types of things just because we're in confusing times. So given those adjustments, it's a bit of a red herring. The unemployment rate likely would have been higher. One other point, and I don't want to sound like a bear. I don't want to sound like a bull. We're somewhere in the middle. We're feeling cautious. But let's just note that in 2008, the unemployment rate peaked at 10%. So arguably and obviously, you know, that's higher the unemployment rate right now and the labor market has a lot more room for it to heal and things to get back to, you know, quote unquote, normal. Why do I say this? Why am I kind of fixated on this idea of the labor market report? Well, as many of you know, there's a big dispersion between what's happening in the market in terms of a V-shaped recovery being perfectly priced in and then what's happening on the economy or the real side in terms of more, let's say, cautious expectations of either a U-shaped recovery or maybe even a swoosh. Like a shape that's just a little bit less pronounced in terms of recovery. So more to go there, right? We have to look for more data and see how things unfold in the summer. I do think Q3 is going to be really important for all of us. But regardless of the short run, the next six to nine months, we know there's a lot of long-run implications from everything that's happening now. And that's why our conversation with Ben and Jennifer is really, really timely. Two things I want to mention with respect to long-run implications before I turn it over to Ben. A theme we've been talking about ad nauseum with clients is around quality. Quality is really interesting because I don't think it can be done particularly well passively. I don't think it can be done particularly well as just like a factor screen. When we talk about quality, we're really talking about companies doing it right, right? Companies getting it right from an operational perspective, but also from an ESG perspective. So we're talking about strong balance sheets, low operating leverage, good management, efficient use of capital, all these things that make for companies doing well in the long run. These are financially material important factors and these are the traditional ones that we look at when we're thinking very active, very bottoms up. But as you're going to hear Jennifer and Ben speak to, when we think about financially materially important factors, we can go outside the realm of the balance sheet and the income statement. We can really look abroad and that's actually when we start to move into ESG. G, when we think about governance, is something that I think comes very naturally to all of us on the call, right? It makes sense. Companies need to be run well. That's governance that, you know, plugs back into quality, which is something we're big advocates for. But now, you know, with E, we were starting to talk a lot more. That was that idea of the wave. Nothing stops a wave. We were talking about climate and that fit you know, quite well into the E, the environmental bucket. Now, in light of everything that's going on, and even before this, we're starting more to talk about the S, right, the social piece. So there's a lot here, and there's a lot that many of you might be familiar with, but we can always keep learning in this space. To those of you who might be new to ESG or sustainable investing, welcome. There's going to be something on this call for everyone. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ben.
0: Great. Thank you, Sam, for that wonderful update. Great to be here. ESG, as you know, was already top of mind for us. And then COVID hit and the topic became even more interesting. So we're really incredibly fortunate to have Jennifer Wu, who is one of the thought leaders in the industry on this topic here at JP Morgan Asset Management to lead us into this exciting area. So Jennifer, great to talk to you. ESG is a confusing thing. It's hard to explain. How do you synthesize it down? I know you talk to so many of our clients. How do you explain it to them, what it is and what it's trying to achieve?
2: Well, thank you, Ben, and thank you, Sam. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be able to connect with you this way, although we can't do this in person. That's a great question. So I have definitely spoken to a lot of clients about what ESG actually means. And if I really break it down and then look at ESG, to me, ESG really are just like factors. And they're like factors that you use to measure what we call the sustainability of a company. And why is that important? Because increasingly, I think we're more aware of how the inputs and outputs, i.e. what company uses as resources to produce products, the actual operations have an impact on the long-term financial return of our investment. So to me, sustainability is really about the repetitiveness and the long-lasting ability of a company to generate consistent and good return. So in that context, when I think about ESG factors, I look at how E, S, and G impact the inputs and outputs of a company's operation. For example, we all know E means environmental. Say we invest in a food and beverage company, I definitely want to know how much water does the company actually use and how efficient is it using water as one of the key ingredients. And why is that important? Because if it's not used efficiently, What's going to happen is that it's going to incur higher costs to produce products. And I also want to look at how the company is potentially treating, say, wastewater. Not only because I am, you know, eco-friendly person, but I know that if they don't manage it well, if they mistreat and also dump wastewater, unethically, this could be fine. If we look at social, what that typically covers are what we call stakeholders. So that's cut across employees, customers, suppliers, and communities. You know, we care about how a company treats its employees because really without good talent and a good health and safety working condition, there's no way that a company can continue to run successfully, let alone profitably. And the impact of a product on a customer is really, really crucial because if it's not managed well, it can really lead to not only loss in sales, but really significant reputational damages. And last but not least, when it comes to G, and this is really where I think of G as the foundation of all things. And it's about the foundational structure of a company. So typical G issues include things like long-term capital allocation strategy, the effective and independence of a board, tax evasion, business ethics, etc. These are all critical issues, not for moral reasons, but they are key ingredients for a company to be successful. So in a nutshell, the way I define ESG is that there are different factors that impact, say, the outputs and the inputs of a company, and they impact the sustainability of a company and its ability to generate consistent and good return. And ESG really is a way for us to look beyond the traditional economic metrics, such as a turnover or inflation, so that we can now systematically capture a more comprehensive set of risks and opportunities that we know really matter, impact long-term financial performance of a company, and use that through the lens of input and output
0: to really accurately measure the potential impact at the total portfolio level. That's very clear. Thank you. Given that definition, what are then the implications for asset management firms who want to incorporate ESG into their investment process?
2: I think it's actually very important to first start with the question of intent. So like, what are you using ESG for? There are really two typical types of intent for asset managers or investors in general to incorporate ESG. And the first one is using ESG in such a way to generate better financial return. And the other intent is really using ESG to deliver a specific sustainability-related outcome that may or may not be financial return or value additive. You note the vocabulary that I use here. So if a fund is using ESG to enhance financial value, we call that a traditional fund that is ESG-integrated. If a fund is using ESG to pursue certain environmental or social outcomes first before pursuing financial value, we call that a dedicated sustainable fund. And it's really important to get the vocabulary right. So when we talk about how asset management firms are incorporating ESG, I am thinking about ESG integration in the context of a traditional fund and in the potential implications of doing that. So because of these factors, and we talked a little bit about some of those already, we're now able to look at how much a company is worth in a much more holistic way. So for asset management firms or investors, anything that impacts performance matters, as you know. Looking at these issues, some of which may not have a financial impact today, are likely going to have a significant financial impact sometime down the road, like product safety or customer data privacy. The ethos of incorporating these factors or ESG factors into investing actually resonate perfectly with the way that we've been investing. Why? Well, we're in the business of forecasting. So we always want to know what's going to happen next. So for us at JPMorgan Asset Management, the incorporation of ESG is really about enhancing our ability to deliver better risk-adjusted return. The other very important thing about ESG is that Traditionally, I think people thought of them as an investment approach only for the purpose of doing good. And the way we see it is that it actually mostly is a question of time frame. So yes, a company today that exploits, say, the surrounding community by way of dumping toxic waste into the local river may enjoy a higher profit margin as it doesn't need to spend money on treating waste properly. However, not only will get caught at some time, hopefully, and therefore face a fine, and potentially even more stringent legal punishment, it also tells us a lot about the integrity of the company, which could provide clues about how they are doing on other S or G issues, which could actually have a more immediate financial impact. And furthermore, if I think about ESG and how we are using ESG, with much greater transparency in the data, what we have seen is that you know, among the public, there is likely going to be a much greater chance of, i.e. the market or us or the general public to find out if something is wrong, either through, say, online NGO report or social media, if there is an incident that's related to illegal dumping of toxic waste. Market price reacts to scandals like that, and therefore it will impact valuation. So from our perspective, I think these ESG factors are becoming much more relevant in the near term, especially from a financial materiality standpoint, because more of these data, as well as increasing social awareness about how these ESG problems are going to impact long-term profitability, are now being factored into how we think about, we can use these new phenomenon, if you like, and factors to change the way we think about valuation. So it's very important to us across, say, all of our actively managed strategies to think about You know, what are the ESG issues that matter and how does that matter depending on the sector, market, region, and how do we then systematically incorporate those into our investment decision-making process?
0: Excellent. And this concept of implicit versus explicit language in the perspective, what's the difference and why does it matter in terms of what the asset management companies are doing?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess the more you think about how these ESG factors are actually able to impact performance, the more you realize that they are actually not that different from the traditional ways of investing. What's really changed is that ESG now acts as what I call additional input into our valuation model and investment decision-making process. And that process of incorporating this additional factor is very similar to how we have been doing investing for the longest time. So, for example, we've always considered the impact of the currency exchange rates and the fluctuation on a multinational company's cash flow. We disclose that in the perspective that we explicitly consider exchange risk in our investment. No, we don't do that because it's widely accepted that this is a risk and that there is a standard way of calculating and incorporating that risk into the investment process. So what I'm saying, there's already a formula written by someone, and everybody acknowledges that this is like the gold standard. Where we are now with ESG and these ESG factors is that we're actually busy writing these formula. And it's not just the asset managers, it's the broader investor community, and even sometimes the policymakers. So like the example I gave earlier around water usage, that formula, and we call it transmission mechanism, We basically have written that, and the way we do it is we look at, say, how water usage for a food and beverage company, how that impacts the operating cost, which is the line item in the income statement, and thereby impacting the earnings of a company. So what we are doing with incorporating ESG factors into our valuation model is to find that transmission mechanism. And we look at how different ESG factors impact which part of the company's financial statements and how. And once we have that transmission mechanism, we call this particular ESG factor financially material. And incorporation of that as part of the research is what we call ESG integration. So if I look at the future, the consideration of many of these ESG factors in the investment process are actually gonna become like second nature. It will look no different to how we consider, say, inflation risk. they may not even mention ESG integration anymore. But until then, because of the questions that we still have and where the market is at around what ESG factors are actually financially material and how are they material to different asset classes, these are all still being developed and worked on by practitioners like ourselves. We want to make sure that we provide the language in the perspectives to let our clients know that hey, this is what we're doing. We're explicitly considering these new factors with the sole purpose to really deliver better risk-adjusted return. And we think it's important to disclose that because we're fiduciary to our clients. And also, we're actually very proud of this because it's very hard to do, and it's a very important piece of work that we have undertaken. It's not easy, and we view that as one of our key differentiators, as an active manager powered by our long-standing active research heritage. And of course, we're always happy to provide additional information to our clients. But the bottom line is that I hope now you understand that when we say in the prospectus that a fund is ESG integrated, it means that we're using a new input called ESG, and we're doing a bunch of analyses looking at how this particular factor is impacting the cash flow, the risk credit rating, as well as the overall financial return profile of a portfolio, we use that and incorporate it into our investment process with a single goal to drive better financial value and nothing else.
0: That's very clear. And how do you measure ESG? This is a very difficult question, Ben.
2: If someone asked me how much, say, additional return was I able to generate because I explicitly consider currency risk, I can probably give you a number, but it's probably not going to be so accurate. And the reason that, because at the portfolio level, there's so many different factors that we combine and we think about, so it's quite hard to disaggregate the attribution of different factors. I mean, we still have problems with risk attribution in our most traditional ways of investing, right? And this is something that, as a community, we're still trying to solve for. However, there are definitely ways of doing it. And here at JPMorgan, I think we've basically just spent the last 10 months going through this exact process. So we reviewed every investment engine across our global platform to measure and assess the level of integration of ESG. as I mentioned earlier, this is still an evolving field. So we understand that the approach might be different even within our own firm, but we wanted to be really specific. The way that we went about in the last 10 months to measure ESG integration is by really asking every team three questions. How did you consider ESG? What did you consider? And how does that impact your portfolio and performance? And we basically used a proprietary, you know, homegrown 10 point metric to really measure the level of ESG integration based on the evidence that the different teams are able to present to us. So on the, how did you consider ESG, for example? We looked at how ESG is being considered at every key step of the investment process. So from how an analyst is thinking about what are the ESG factors that matter to this company that I invest in because of its sector and region, and how is that impacting my evaluation model? And then we look at how that recommendation from the analyst goes to the PM, the portfolio manager, and whether that impacts the portfolio manager's portfolio construction or buy and sell decision making. We also look at how it's been monitored at the risk management level, as well as how it's documented in our system. So all in all, what we want to see is that ESG needs to be explicitly considered, and it needs to be part of the entire process. The second question that we ask all teams to be able to demonstrate to us that they are integrating ESG is, what is it that you are actually considering? What ESG factor? Because we know that it really depends on the team. So we care about what are the factors that each team considers and uses, where do they get the data, and also the key differences across teams. And through that process, we were able to really look for best practices and share these best practices with the different teams. What we were not doing is to effectively impose one model of integrating ESG on one particular team. A very simple example I can give you is what we have seen is that there is a particular social issue with regards to a company, related to a corporate scandal. What we saw is that the decision made by the equity portfolio manager is that it will impact stock price because the market is likely going to react to it. Hence, it prompted a decision to you know, effectively sell at the equity portfolio manager level. Whereas if we look at the fixed income portfolio manager, He or she actually may make a very different decision because you know the transmission mechanism, as I said earlier, is whether this particular incident or S issue would impact the credit rating of this particular issue or bond issue that the portfolio manager holds. And if the answer is no, then yes, the portfolio manager would have considered ESG and measure it, but the impact of this ESG factor on the portfolio construction decision making is minimal. So that would be an entirely different decision that the portfolio manager would make. And these are the kind of things that we're looking for. Like, how do you think about ESG? How do you actually use that to make decisions? And the final piece is, you know, on the what, right? So what impact does that have? And because we went down the level of looking for individual examples, we're then able to really aggregate these individual examples at a portfolio level to you know, effectively say, okay, this is the likely impact of our portfolio as a result of ESG integration. So, all in all for us, I think at JP Morgan Asset Management, the key to measuring ESG integration is to really focus on the comprehensiveness of how it's been explicitly considered, as well as the consistency in how it's been implemented
0: across the entire investment process. That's great. And, Jennifer, how did ESG perform through COVID?
2: Yeah, I think across the board, what we've seen is that companies that have really good ESG attributes, like Sam said earlier, have proven to be much more resilient. So if I look at our traditional strategies, i.e. strategies that are ESG integrated, we can see how ESG integration definitely helped us to hedge against some of those shocks. either companies have higher cash reserves that they could actually use in time like this, and or companies that were already equipped with a good way to provide all of their employees to work remotely, thanks to a very robust business resiliency and risk management framework that had already been put in place way before the pandemic. So we were also able to see how in crisis like this, you know, many of the dedicated sustainable strategies actually perform even stronger, given that a lot of them have a higher concentration in their portfolios on the companies that have the best, what we call ESG profile. So for example, our uh, global bond opportunity sustainable strategy has generated top quintile performance in the global unconstrained category because of the specific focus on high ESG performing issuers. And it's true that if you look at the market Some of these dedicated sustainable products have only outperformed because they explicitly exclude poor performing sectors such as energy. And this is what you can see in a lot of those passive ESG ETFs. And the outperformance is not because of thoughtful research on which ESG factor actually deliver better risk mitigation effect. So I think all in all, ESG definitely has perform really well. And I would say mainly it's because of how these companies have proven to be much more resilient. And I think for investors, there are really two key lessons learned from this pandemic that I want to share with you. The first one is, you know, in this uncertain world that we currently live in, it's incredibly hard to predict what the next crisis might look like, when that could happen, and what's going to be the impact. Therefore, I think very important to ensure that in your portfolio, both traditional economic metrics as well as these non-traditional factors such as ESG that are financially material are all taken into consideration thoughtfully when making investment decisions and constructing portfolios. Because companies that use resources more efficiently, they well manage human capital, as well as suppliers, and companies focus on sound governance structure, they will have a better chance at weathering the next storm. So you want to make sure that financially material ESG factors are being explicitly considered by your asset manager. And a second lesson learned that I want to share is that, you know, there are some long-term shifts in the supply and demand in the market as a result of the pandemic. And we want to focus on those because potentially we can benefit from some of those new emerging investment opportunities. And they may have an impact on say, asset allocation decisions. So for example, it is expected that there's going to be a renewal focus on localization of sourcing and supply chain. And this will help the climate change agenda to reduce, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. And it's going to help with the social agenda by potentially increasing local employment. We also believe that there is likely going to be an acceleration in the development and deployment of AI and robotics in healthcare delivery so that a patient can still have an operation during a pandemic without increasing his or her chances of getting infected too significantly. So... Does that create an opportunity for certain types of dedicated sustainable strategies to outperform even more? I think so. And what I'm trying to say here is that we can almost start to think of sustainable strategies or ESG funds as like a separate asset class so that we can see how they will benefit as a result of this shift in our world and some parts of our economy.
0: Really interesting. And you mentioned resiliency. How is ESG perhaps uniquely positioned to help investors look at a firm's culture?
2: Yeah, so ESG factors, in my mind, really have the ability to identify the long-term sustainability of a company's operation. They naturally focus on issues that are more longer term. And sometimes they focus on issues that are what we call more qualitative by nature, like resiliency and culture. That's a great example. So a company can provide, say, the best compensation and benefits program for their employees. But if the culture is to promote always putting profit before clients or discourages inclusiveness, we actually believe that its business performance is not going to be long-lasting. As we all know, short-termism is problematic, and it generally results in unethical behavior it'll also likely lose the ability to retain and attract talent. So these seemingly qualitative ESG factors are actually having, you know, the more that we delve into this, we could actually see how these issues do have an impact on companies' performance. And these are not traditional metrics that we learn at school when studying finance or economics. But they are factors that impact the traditional metrics that we learn about at school. And many thanks to data and research, we're now actually measuring these factors and we're able to identify their transmission mechanism. So, for example, at JP Morgan Asset Management, we use data from Glassdoor quite extensively to understand how the culture of a firm is like. And we also consider signals that we get from these alternative data sources that helps us to understand the culture of a firm, we use that in conjunction with other S&G factors, such as labor management, product safety, and also senior management or board effectiveness. In order to fully assess how these factors combine together and how they may impact the future profitability or even the creditworthiness of a company. So it is very much focusing on the resiliency of a company, as well as some of those more subtle qualitative features of a company that do have you know, financial impact in the long run. So the answer is absolutely yes. ESG is very uniquely positioned to look at these set of issues.
0: That's great. And Jennifer, I know you talk to a lot of investors. What percentage of investors think that ESG's performance through COVID was just a function of being overweight technology and underweight energy?
2: Yeah, I think that has been some of those first reactions as we enter into lockdown globally and then start seeing how oil price dropped as a result of that. You know, energy as a sector really suffered from the fluctuation and volatility in the oil market. But I hope by now you start to get a sense about how much more there is to ESG than just, say, energy or technology. Right. Because when ESG first became a hot topic in the market, the general understanding was that ESG reflects values, moral or ethical values. And ESG really is only for investors that look to inject these values of theirs into portfolios and they're willing to sacrifice return. So the expression of this type of investment objective was often by way of excluding a whole sector like energy that does not align with a client's particular set of values. But what's really happened over the course of the last two to three years is that there started to be a better understanding of how these ESG factors Actually, is not just about an expression of values, but you could actually use them as any other quantifiable factors to identify risks that we had either never thought about or we just couldn't measure before. So, for instance, how a company is treating its employees or customers. If it doesn't do it well, not only it impacts negatively on the employees and customers, it also hurts the financial performance of the company because of the many transmission mechanisms that we talked about. But the market was only just getting to understand which of these issues are not just values-based, but actually value-driven we saw in the last two to 3 years there's became greater understanding of oh how these ESG issues may actually impact performance but many third party rating agencies started to create these ESG ratings based on their views of what are the ESG issues that matter be it for financial value or you know ethical values alignment reasons and then they also form these ratings based on what companies disclose well it certainly makes our lives as an investor much easier to have a single score as opposed to analyzing, say, 75 different ESG factors. There are two main problems with these scores. So the first one is they don't always make a distinction between you know, which ESG issue actually helps to give you better financial performance and which of these ESG issues are actually more values-driven. And that makes our lives as portfolio manager very difficult to really integrate ESG if we're managing, say, a traditional fund, as it may contain, these ratings may contain something that could hurt performance. And then the second problem is that these rating agencies form their scores based on information that's published by companies. Since These disclosure of information is not mandatory, and companies can decide what they want to say in these reports. What we have seen is that bigger and more what we call resourceful companies tend to have better disclosure and tech companies are a good example, right? They generally are more resource efficient. Many of them are actually good from an ESG standpoint. As a result, they look quite good, according to many of these rating agencies. So where we are at today at J.P. Morgan Asset Management is that, well, the market has evolved a lot. We now know that ESG is not only just an expression of your personal values, but we can actually use ESG in such a way to better mitigate risks and potentially identify new alpha opportunities. But it's not enough to use what's readily available in the market by third party or what company discloses. So, you know, what we're trying to do is that we're actually forming our own views about which companies have good ESG profile. And this way we can really incorporate that into our traditional funds and use ESG to generate better return and furthermore, we can be more precise in delivering the sustainable outcomes for clients based on their actual needs. So, for example, when we think about who are the winners as we move into a low carbon economy, it is more than just renewable energy producers that will be the winners. Because, you know, for a company to win or what low carbon economy means to different sectors, winner not only needs to manage its carbon emissions, But it's equally important to look at how companies manage water, waste, supply chain risks, and also how well they are positioned to tap into new investment opportunities, which could be about, you know, future of food production, if it's in agriculture, electric vehicles, or even green building and infrastructure. So all in all, I think it's a long answer to your question, it is much, much more than just tech
0: and energy. Clearly. Thank you for that. What else are you hearing from investors on this topic?
2: Um, I be like giving you quite a few examples, but I would say increasingly clients are asking if they can both do well and do good. And the answer is yes. You know, in the last three months, what we have consistently heard from clients especially is how there is now a greater focus on not just the E of ESG, but also the S and the G in the companies that they invest in. Why? Because at the end of the day, companies that take care of their employees and customers, companies that have the habit of thinking about how to more efficiently use their resources, and companies that have a sound governance structure you know, they tend to be much more resilient if you think about risk management in a more holistic way. And in a nutshell, not only you'll be investing companies that are likely going to outperform because they can weather the storm, but these are companies that, you know, take customer data, product safety really seriously so they're also able to produce products that have a positive outcome or impact onto the society and the environment so it is i think at this age that we're in you know totally possible to both do well and do good and that is something that you know we're having more and more discussion with clients about
0: excellent lots of clearly very interesting client conversations happening Kenneth, what can we expect from J.P. Morgan Asset Management in ESG in the coming months?
2: Yeah, so all of our actively managed strategies are being ESG integrated, and I talked about what that means, right? The goal is to really use ESG as factors to enhance financial return. And, you know, to create our own proprietary ESG views and what these factors are, we combine our sector company level knowledge from our 200 plus investors around the world. We combine that with thematic expertise around the sustainability issues, and we leverage the power of our data science capability to tap into unconventional sources so that we can really create a more forward-looking and alpha-seeking set of ESG factors and signals for our own investors to deliver better risk-adjusted return for our clients. And on top of that, we also have a suite of dedicated sustainable capabilities that seek to generate sustainability-related outcomes as well as financial return. So these products and strategies range from exclusions-based only all the way to best-in-class and thematic. And what we are focusing on in the next six months is really working with clients to provide customized solutions based on their desired outcomes, to really help them achieve what they regard as both doing well and doing good. So deliver financial value as well as sustainability outcomes. And that's going to be a key focus for us in
0: the next 6 to 12 months. That's very exciting. Thank you, Jennifer, for your incredible insights today and your leadership on this important topic for JPMorgan Asset Management. And thank you, as always, Sam, for your very timely market insights.
3: For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations, the views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, Credit and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by JP Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https://am.jpmorgan.com slash global, slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local JP Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APOC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association. Type II Financial Instruments Firm's Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55,143,832,080, AFSL 376,919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.